Welcome to Hope Awakens, coming to you from Collegedale, Tennessee, just outside Chattanooga. I am so glad you are here. We are going to be blessed. We're on a journey of discovery together, answering many, many questions and digging into the Word of God so that we can make sense of the moment. It's a crazy world right now, lots of challenges, but I'm hoping that as you're journeying with us through Hope Awakens, you're coming away with a very real sense that God is real, God can be trusted, that He's with you and is going to lead us all out of this oddball time we're living in to a place of absolute certainty and security. Tonight, our subject is the new normal, a world without fear. You're joining people from around the globe on Hope Awakens. I want to say hi to Michael, who is in Effort, Pennsylvania. Gail is in Stanton, North Dakota, on the banks of the Missouri River. Christine is watching in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Alan is in Anchorage, Alaska. Wynette is in Waianae, Hawaii. Doris is in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Karen's in Prince George, British Columbia. David's in Modesto, California. Diane is in Louisville, Kentucky. Get ready to be blessed as we make sense of the moment. Thanks for being part of Hope Awakens. I'm John Bradshaw. This is Hope Awakens, brought to you by It Is Written. It Is Written has been on the air for almost 65 years, opening up the Bible and offering hope to people all around the world. You can watch anytime on It Is Written TV. Just go to itiswritten.tv. After Hope Awakens, of course, and you'll find us there. Hopeawakens.org is where you'll find resources, previous presentations. You can submit your questions there. You can also watch Hope Awakens in ASL, American Sign Language. You can do that at hopeawakens.org. If you know anyone who's a sign language speaker, let them know. Look below the video on the homepage for a link under the heading, Other Viewing Options. You'll see something that says Sign Language. Click on that. It'll take you right to the ASL stream. We also would like you to know there are captions available on the Facebook live stream. If you don't see them, click on the gear button, switch the captions to the on position, and you'll be away. Now, time for your questions. To ask them, as always, here's Doug Naar. Hey, John, it's good to be here at Hope Awakens. Again, I am blessed every night with these wonderful questions. And here's our first one. Pastor John, I am frustrated with this isolation of COVID-19. I feel lonely. I pray to God and I don't hear anything back. What should I do? Okay, good question. Here's what you do. You pray in faith. That's what you do. You pray. When you pray, God hears you. you. He just does. Now, if isolation is getting to you, connect with others as far as you can. You know that old fashioned thing called the telephone we had. Now, of course, you got video chatting and all of that sort of a thing. Connect as much as you can. Do what you can to stay healthy, to, to be walking, to be serving others, to be outside as far as is possible. Not possible in some places. But do know that God is with you. The Bible is God speaking to you. His promises are made to you. You might not hear Him, but He is there. How can you tell someone who has little faith in God that there is a God and He loves us? Well, maybe the best thing you can do is show that person. Share with that person what God has done for you. Your testimony can never be argued with. When you have an opportunity, open up the Bible, pray for that person, be gentle, be kind, be as inoffensive as you can because you want to build a bridge and not a wall. 
But perhaps the very best thing is to show somebody the love of God. You can do that through your life. The sun, moon, and stars were created on the fourth day. Therefore, how can there be a 24-hour period before that? Okay, you're suggesting that maybe we are dependent on the sun, moon, and the stars for a 24-hour period, but I don't know that we are. God said evening and morning were the first day, so that was a day, 24 hours, sun, moon, stars, or not. God was very consistent starting at day one, day two, day three, and then day four and on, evening and morning. They were days there in Genesis chapter one. I listen to other preachers on the radio talk about Sunday as being the correct day of worship. Now, why are you right and they are wrong? Oh, okay. Uh, it's an unfortunate way of putting the question. It's not a matter of me being right and somebody else being wrong. It, it, it just isn't. You see, the only right one is God, and He reveals His rightness to us in the Word of God. So you're not going to say, who's my favorite speaker or who's the most convincing? You are always going to go to the Bible and say, what does this book say? Now, there are many and varied reasons why certain people teach different ways. It's wondrous, isn't it, that you can come to the Bible and it says, in the beginning God, and then it says, the seventh day is the Sabbath. And listen to someone who was very well studied and greatly respected and widely well known, and they say something completely the opposite. Well, let me take you to another subject that we studied. We su studied the subject of what happens when you die. The Bible's clear, man. When you die, you sleep. But what happens is we've been told so many other things that we read, you die and you sleep. Oh, well, this must mean something else then because what I've been told is thus and so. Now, where did that idea come from? It came from Plato and Socrates. It came from Greek philosophers. Then when Augustine came along as a theologian, he borrowed from the philosophers. Philosophy usurped theology. And so he started teaching Greek mythology for Bible truth. And you hand that down hundreds of years, and today people don't accept it. You can show them what the Bible says. They say, well, that can't be right, because everybody else says differently. On the subject of the Sabbath, it's the same. The Bible says the seventh day is the Sabbath, but then you hear somebody on the radio, as you mentioned, say otherwise, so convincing, how could they be wrong? So many people seem to believe that, and now you say, well, maybe even though the Bible speaks clearly, I should not accept that. So I just want to encourage you, follow what the Bible says. Don't make it a matter about this preacher, that teacher, this theologian, that professor. Make it a matter of what God says to you in this book. When you do that, you can never go wrong. John, we have a live question from Rick, and I believe he's coming from Michigan. Fantastic. Hi, Rick. How are you doing tonight? <clears throat> I'm doing well. Okay, great. You got, a, you got a question. Yeah, fire ahead. I do. Matthew 24, 20 says to pray that your flight not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Was this related to the destruction of the temple or the end of times before Jesus comes again? I think and should we be praying for this now? Yeah, oh, okay, good, thanks. I think you'll find that this was related to the destruction of the temple. Having said that, having said that, it wouldn't be unwise to pray along those lines now. What I mean is this. The Bible talks about there coming a time of trouble, and so we ought to pray that we'll be awake to God's leading and sensitive to the sound of His voice. Primarily, it does seem that relates especially to what happened in 70 AD, but there are some principles that we can bring down here to the end of time and say, Lord, help me to follow this with a whole heart. Rick, thank you. Really appreciate that. John, do you believe that pastors 
can heal the sick? And can we heal ourselves through prayer? No pastor ever healed anybody. God healed and does heal. So healing still happens. And yes, healing will happen in answer to prayer. Sometimes it does not, but we learn to pray, accepting the will of God, knowing that in eternity, it will all work out and seem just right to us. Now, the study guide said that there are two resurrections. So how do you explain Revelation 1 verse 7? Oh, that says, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. So what it seems is that right at about the time Jesus is coming back, those responsible for his crucifixion will be raised from the dead to witness that this really is Messiah who is coming back. That probably makes most sense if you put yourself there at the cross and witness what's going on. And you might say, ah, I really see why that might be a good idea. But that's what it says in Revelation 1 and verse 7. And so we believe it. If there is no sadness in heaven, when I get to heaven and I won't see a loved one who's supposed to be there, won't I feel sad? Well, I mean, maybe, but I think in all reality, what we know is this. When we get to heaven, our mind is going to be so much more expanded. You are going to see with, with, with God's eyes, as it were. So we won't feel that raw human pain there that we do here. Our understanding will have been so uh, enlarged, so grown. We'll have spent time in Jesus don't think that you're going to go to heaven and die of a broken heart. That's just not going to happen. Now, why do you call your ministry, It Is Written? Oh, well, that name was chosen many years ago by somebody who wanted to reflect the fact that at It Is Written, we really just want to let the Bible teach and let the Bible have the final word. This is quoting Jesus in Matthew 4 when he said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it's an indication that it is our desire that the Bible is lifted up and the word of God is uh, takes precedence. Very good. Now, you often hear people say, we must listen to God's still small voice. What does that mean? Does that mean I hear an audible voice in my head, through my ears, or does it have to do something with reading the Bible? Can you please explain? Well, it could be any of those things. God will speak to you. He may impress you, speak through His Word. Some people have heard a voice. Don't hang out for that. It does happen, but it doesn't happen a lot. Uh, so any of those things, however God speaks to you through His Holy Spirit, that's the still small voice. Now, after the 1,000 years of Satan's lockdown, he'll be released for a little while to deceive the nations. Does that mean that they will have another chance to repent and make things right and be saved? No, it does not. There will be no additional chance to repent at all. This life is it. Now, is baptism necessary in order to be saved? Faith is necessary in order to be saved. We're saved by grace through faith, not grace through baptism. Having said that, baptism is one of those things that a saved person will do. If you've come to Jesus and you've accepted him as Savior and God says, go ahead and be baptized, and you stamp your foot and say, I'm not doing that, uh, this would indicate that there's something a little flaky about your relationship with God. So no, you're not saved by baptism, but it's something that saved people ought to do out of love for God. Now, the Bible says in Exodus 16, verse 29, For the Lord hath given you the Sabbath. Abide ye every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Now, in light of this, why do we insist of going to church worship and Bible studies on the Sabbath day? You know what I think? What I think is that somebody fed you this verse. You know why I think that? Because if you read that verse in its context, you would see that this is God speaking to Israel about collecting manna. 
collect it on day one, two, three, four, and five. On day six, take twice as much. On day seven, don't go out and collect it. That's what this is referring to. It has nothing to do with whether to keep the Sabbath or not, or, or, or go and worship corporately or not. So I just can't help thinking that somebody came to you and said, look at this verse. Because if you were reading through your Bible, you would have said, oh, this is, this is about collecting manna. So when you see a verse like this, be sure to read it in context. Now, I could be wrong, but what I'm not wrong about is that you didn't read this in context. So read in context, and that's how these verses become very clear to you. Why does God kill bad people at the end? If He's a loving God, why does He do that? Well, it's not that God kills bad people. It, it, it certainly, the judgment of God uh, is poured out. Sin is destroyed, and anyone who is connected to sin will be destroyed along with it. But don't put this all on God. God is calling us to repent right now. So if we are lost, God is simply honoring the choices that we make. That's all God is doing. With the destruction of sin and sinners, God is honoring the choices made by sinful people. Now, what happens to those who are sleeping and have not accepted Jesus as their Savior? Well, we might have found that out uh, last time we met, and we'll certainly find that out tonight. So hang in there with us. You're going to hear about that. I would like my pastor to hear what you have to say. How should I do that? You say, Pastor, I want you to hear this. Uh, then you may want to be a little more diplomatic. Uh, share with your pastor. But here's what, I, here's what I want to discourage. Don't go to your pastor and say, tell me what to think. If you've been learning and you've been blessed and you would like the pastor to learn and be blessed, then send the pastor a link or say, hey, would you be open to looking at this and listening to this? But don't go to the pastor and say, I don't know what to do. You tell me and I'll listen to you. You listen to God. God will lead you. I would like to know about the rapture. Is it pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation? Could you please explain? Okay, let's talk about tribulation because typically, frequently, people will talk about a seven-year tribulation period. You know what I'd like you to do? I would like to give you my Bible, and I'll just wait here while you look through the Bible and find anything that indicates there's a seven-year tribulation period. It's not there. Now, if that comes to you as a bombshell, then two things. One, pick up your Bible and check, and two, ask yourself how you got sucked into believing that, because it's not in the Bible. Now, what we do know is there's going to be a time of trouble. We live on the earth, there's a time of trouble, and then Jesus returns. So you can call that any old kind of trib that you want, but study the second coming of Jesus and try and get some of these things ironed out because a lot of popular theology today is a little wide of the mark. What is the best way to have personal discussions with my friends about these profound topics that I've been hearing about on Hope Awakens. Okay, prayerfully and carefully. Prayerfully and carefully. That's how you do it. Also, make sure you're coming alongside your friends. You don't want to whack them with a Bible truth. Don't want to be argumentative about it. But be prayerful. Be careful. God will guide you. Scratch where the itch is. That's often uh, something that helps a lot. Now, does Sabbath mean rest in Hebrew? A friend of mine says that the Sabbath is a day of rest and does not necessarily mean the seventh day. Why, herein is a marvelous thing. Yes, the word Sabbath does mean rest, but <laughs> your friend needs to read the Bible. It says the seventh day is the Sabbath. It can't get any more plain than that. So don't let your friend be your authority. Let the Bible be your authority. Yes, it's rest, 
but we just can't avoid what the Bible says. Why would we want to? God has given this to us as a gift. Look, if you're going to dig your heels in and say, I want my tradition more than I want the Word of God, then that's on you or on your friend. But let's, let's have bigger hearts toward God than that. Here's our last question, John. Okay. How can I see your presentations more than once? Oh, good question. Yeah, you can binge watch all you want. Go to hopeawakens.org and you can watch previous presentations there. You could also go to itiswritten.tv and find our presentations there. And you can watch and watch and watch. And I hope that you'll be blessed and share them with others. Awesome. Thank you very much. I want to introduce my special guest tonight. My special guest is a friend and colleague. He is It Is Written's associate speaker and his name is Eric Flickinger. Eric, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for joining me tonight on Hope Awakens. Good to be here, John. Hey, tonight, let's talk together about change. How do people deal with change in their life? Right now, it's all about change. Things are upside down. What do you recommend? They, they are absolutely changing. Right now, of course, we've got uh, the coronavirus that everybody is dealing with, and that's, in, that's impacting people's health. It's impacting people's income. It's impacting people's relationships. Somebody once said that the only constant in life is change, and we are seeing uh, ample evidence of that right now. In fact, in the business world, this has been a big topic for a long, long time. There was a book that was written in 1998 on the subject of change that has sold over 26 million copies. It's a small little book. It's called Who Moved My Cheese by Spencer Johnson, MD. 26 million copies, 37 different languages that it's been translated into. People are concerned about change. Yeah, they are. Now, what about you? Have you ever had to real, I mean, deal with real, real, I mean, you got married and you've changed jobs and whatever. Uh, anything sure. from your experience that you can share? Yeah, about 13 years ago, our, our family went through a significant change. My wife and I, we had our first child. Now, that's, that's a big change for anybody. But when our daughter was born, she was born with an extra chromosome. Uh, most people have 46. She was born with 47. Uh, the condition that she had was is called uh, trisomy 21, or more frequently referred to as Down syndrome. Now, it's the most common survivable genetic birth defect. So when you're becoming new parents, and then you add that to it, that's a significant change in your life. And there was a little bit of stress to begin with. We didn't know quite what was going on and which way we were going to go, but we came to a realization pretty quickly. And that was that this had only occurred because God had permitted it to occur. And if he had permitted it to occur, then he was going to give us what we would need to make it through this significant change in our lives. That was 13 years ago now. Uh, my daughter is now a, a teenager, so I'm a parent of a teenager. She's a vibrant young lady. She plays the violin. She swims like a fish. She has a wonderful younger brother, an 11-year-old younger brother who's fantastic. So even though there was a, a significant change that wasn't expected 13 years ago, God has brought wonderful things out of it. Yes, he has. Yes, she is. And yes, he is too, for that matter. How do we deal with change from a biblical perspective? Are there biblical principles we can look at and follow? Uh, there are uh, three different ideas that are important to keep in mind when you're thinking about change. Uh, keep in mind Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that significant changes are going to take place in this world. In fact, we're, we're living in those right now. So he tells us that we can anticipate those changes. The second thing is to prepare for those changes. A couple of chapters later in Matthew chapter 26, you read the story of the woman with the alabaster box of ointment who pours it on Jesus' head. 
Jesus' ministry was about to go through a significant change, and she was helping to prepare for that. And the third thing is to react to that change. Nicodemus, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, knew that something was going on, and he went and he had a night uh, visit with, with uh, Jesus. But from that night visit, his understanding of who Jesus was grew and grew till the point of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Nicodemus was a significant supporter of the infant Christian church. And if you're looking for hope and encouragement during this time of change, if you're going through some unpleasant changes, there are three chapters in the Bible that can be incredibly encouraging to you. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And you'll find out very quickly that Jesus has your back and he will help you through any changes that you're going through. Okay, just quickly now in the minute or so that we've got left. When you come to something like Hope Awakens and you, you, you start looking at the Bible, you might start to learn new things that might introduce change into your life from a Christian practice perspective. So what do you say right. to people who right now are saying, wow, I've learned some new things. This might mean change. Sure. If you're going to open the Bible, and I suggest that you open it on a regular basis, one of the best things that you can do prior to opening that Bible is to pray. And if you will pray that God will reveal truth to you, that, that he will reveal his will to you, then the next step is on us. God will answer that prayer. He will reveal truth and he will reveal his will. But then it's up to us what we're going to do with that. You may remember the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. So now it's up to us to say, Lord, if this is your will, if this is your truth, then Jesus says you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. If you want to be free, embrace the truth that you find in Jesus' word and you will be the better for it. Eric Flickinger, it is written associate speaker. Thank you, man. Really good to have you here tonight. God bless you. Thank you, John. Good to be here. Thanks. Eric spoke about praying. So let's do that together right now and pray, and then we'll go to the Bible together. Our Father in heaven, bless us again from your word. Speak to our hearts. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, do you remember the good old days? Weren't they something? I remember when a loaf of bread cost less than 20 cents. I remember stamps costing two cents and a bottle of milk, a bottle of milk costing just four cents. Now, many people can go back a lot further than me. You'll talk to people in this country who remember gasoline, petrol in other countries, costing 30 or so cents a gallon. People seemed to have more time then. Values were different. Cities weren't so big, but hearts seemed bigger. We would leave the doors on our house locked when I was growing up. Did I say locked? Wait a minute. We would leave them unlocked when I was growing up in case somebody wanted to get in while we were away. Now, of course, today we do the exact opposite. I remember the day I saw my father doing something with the window. What are you doing with the windows, Dad? He told me he was locking them. I honestly didn't even know that we had locks on the windows. Ah, those were the days. Remember the good old days? Sure you do. Black South Africans lived in segregated communities. They could only be educated or employed where they were permitted. Beaches and drinking fountains and you name it, segregated. Remember the good old days when the troubles roiled Northern Ireland? Several thousand people died in the troubles and almost 50,000 were injured. Bomb blasts and hunger strikes and terrorist attacks. In 1990, I was working in a department store on Oxford Street in London when the system of signal lights on the wall all started flashing in unison. I didn't know what that was, but I noticed the staff became animated and began buzzing about. I said to one of them, what are you doing? He said, 
aren't you going to help look? And so I said, look for what? And he said, look for the bomb. And I said, excuse me, what bomb would that be? You see, when all the lights flashed in unison, it was indicating that somebody had phoned in, phoned in a bomb threat. This was a big deal department store. I said to the guy, and what are we going to do if we find the bomb? He wasn't sure. One Monday early in 1991, a bomb exploded in Victoria Station at 20 to 8 in the morning. It exploded on the very route I walked from where I got off the tube and to where I caught a train. It exploded right at the time that I would have been walking by. Now, fortunately, my last day on that job was the Friday before. This happened on Monday. Monday, I wasn't there in Victoria Station. Remember the good old days? Remember them? Remember the 1960s? You've at least heard about those days if you don't remember them. We put a man on the moon in the 1960s. I don't remember that. The Beatles and the Monkees and Simon and Garfunkel and Motown, Motown. President Kennedy, who was shot. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated outside room 309 of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. And why was he there? He was there because civil rights didn't exist for dark-skinned Americans. Bloody Sunday occurred in Selma, Alabama, when African-Americans attempted to march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge because blacks essentially weren't allowed to vote in the South. Jim Crow laws made sure that public facilities in the South were segregated. And if you were the wrong color, well, you couldn't eat here or you couldn't stay there or you might just better get out of town. It's unfathomable. And it's slightly uncomfortable to think about. The good old days. Ah, we could talk about the Klan and so much more who thrived in the good old days. Now, I know in spite of the ghastly things that happened in the past, we can think back at the past in some ways as a simpler time, a happier time. I get that. I do. But what we both get is that the good old days were never entirely good. Shall we go back to the 1940s? Well, that was World War II. Millions perished. As humanity demonstrated, it has an immense capacity for finding the most destructive ways of settling differences. In the 1930s, the Nazi party rose to power. The Great Depression crushed the economy and a lot of people right along with it in the 1920s. Remember the good old days? We might have looked back on these as the good old days. Unemployment was very low. The stock market was very high. Business and industry leaders were innovating like crazy. Labor-saving devices and other devices were making some of life's challenges so much easier to deal with. And now this. A virus struck, not the first one we've ever had to encounter, not even the deadliest. That distinction doesn't even belong to the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, when as many as 50 million people may have died. But you go back to the middle of the 14th century, the Black Death may well have killed 200 million people. Between 30 and 60 percent of Europe's population is thought to have perished. Well, what's society going to look like when this is over? Well, we don't know exactly, but already airlines are talking about making passengers wear masks on planes, which frankly isn't the worst thing that could happen. And if you've ever sat next to or beside somebody coughing up a lung on a flight, then you might even think it's about time we did this. But were these days ever really the good old days? Masses of people are incarcerated in this country. 
25% of the world's prison populations are in American prisons. We still around the world have governments rattling their sabers, invading other sovereign nations, claiming or seizing territory. Of course, we still have a very well-armed and well-trained military ready to go at a moment's notice. And that's not just because we like to have that. This is a dangerous, unstable world. COVID-19 or not, 36 million people have been infected with HIV. And diseases like cancer and diabetes and heart disease claim a staggering amount of lives. We're kind of used to it. The world is still a wonderful place in many ways, and we don't tend to dwell on the negative. We've just learned to live in a world where there's killing and crime and terrorism and illness and insecurity and natural disasters, and this is normal. But one day, there's going to be a new normal. The Bible says there is coming a day when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. It's almost impossible to imagine. We're accustomed to hearing about death, to enduring pain, to going through sorrow. But one day, gone, all gone. And that's because one day sin is going to be gone forever. No more sin. That's what God promises. No more injustice. No more unfairness. No more rejection. No more strained relationships. No more family members in hospital. No more prisons. No more false accusations. No more ever. It's all going to be gone. So what is it that heralds the end of all this and an entirely new normal? Paul wrote about it in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus is going to come back to this earth, and when He does, no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow. That's why the last prayer recorded in the Bible is a prayer concerning the return of Jesus. John wrote in Revelation 22:20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Look at this. Even so, Come, Lord Jesus. That's the last prayer in the Bible, the second last verse in the Bible. We know that when Jesus returns to this earth, He sweeps away the kingdoms of this world, all gone. We know the saved go to heaven. We know that the lost perish. We found out something we met last time, when we met last time, that's really it's sobering, actually. It's going to happen after the holy city comes down from heaven at the end of the millennium. So we go back to Revelation 20. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This is God ridding the world of sin. And for that matter, sinners. That's a pretty strong thought. 
But as serious as it is, I think you'd agree that getting rid of sin is preferable to letting it remain in the universe throughout eternity. You've seen or you might know people who've had limbs amputated. As unfortunate as that is, sometimes those amputations have saved the life of the person who was affected. So God intends to one day get rid of sin. And why is that? Look, think with me. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what was it like? Verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. So evening and morning were the sixth day. It was very good. After Jesus returns to this earth, God is going to make all things new. In fact, right after God says he's going to wipe away all tears and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying, he says, behold, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, right, for these words are true and faithful. So what's it going to look like when God makes all things new? Undoubtedly, God is going to restore the world to perfection. Isaiah wrote that God said, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Peter said, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's going to make everything new, and we get to be the beneficiaries of that. But when it comes to the idea of God getting rid of sin, I tell you, people don't much like that. Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers recently said, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. Like, what kind of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn most of his creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this? That's a fair question, of course. But I wonder if we can examine the assumptions made there, recognizing the concerns raised by Mr. Rogers are concerns held by many, many people. Jonathan Edwards, famous 17th century preacher and theologian. His grandson was Aaron Burr, third vice president of the United States. For a short time before his death, Mr. Edwards was the president of what's now Princeton University. He was a big deal, and he's remembered mainly for one sermon, a sermon that was widely read. It has been described as a classic of early American literature. In Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Edwards thundered this. Stay with me. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. 
and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty merciless vengeance. And then when you have so done, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. Now imagine that. Many people hold that to be the gospel truth. Now the Bible certainly does talk about the wrath of God, but you've got to really understand that. Is that what hell's actually about? My wife and I were driving west some years ago. We needed to use a payphone. I guess that shows you how many years ago it was. And at a certain payphone in northern Idaho, we found these, these, these little pink pages left all over the phone booth by some dear soul who had done his or her missionary duty. Someone pointed out to me, these may indeed be excerpts from a book. So whatever it is, somebody is describing the journey they took to hell of all places. Person writes about coming back from hell in an endeavor, I'm sure, to keep people from ever going there. Let me read to you from these tracts. The Lord and I went into hell. There were pits of fire as far as I could see. Hell is shaped like a human body lying in the center of the earth. Uh, as soon as we were inside, you got to love this, I began to see great snakes, large rats, and many evil spirits all running from the presence of the Lord. Now, I would have thought that the rats and the snakes would be first to go, but evidently they, they thrive in this place. Okay. Jesus was the only light to be seen in the tunnel. Okay. In the next pit was a woman on her knees as if looking for something. Her skeletal form was full of holes. Her bones were showing through and her torn dress was on fire. Her head was bald and there were only holes where her eyes and nose were supposed to be. Oh Lord, oh Lord, she cried, I want out. As we watched, she finally got to the top of the pit with her feet. I thought she was going to get out when a large demon with great wings that seemed to be broken down at the top ran towards her, pushed her backward into the pit and fire. I watched in horror as she fell. As you would. Now, let's try to keep a few things in mind here. The Bible tells us that God is love. It's hard to imagine why a God who is love would find any joy or even necessity in that type of destruction, certainly in the eternal destruction of the wicked. In fact, God said in Ezekiel, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live. You see, God is love. How does a God who has loved burn lost sinners for eternity? I met a lady once who told me she had become a witch, left Christianity, became a witch because of how repulsive she found the idea that God would burn people forever. She said to herself, I decided if, in fact, she said to me, I decided if that's what God was like, I'd be better off without him. Hard to blame her for feeling that way especially when you read the Bible and see what it actually says. Now, make no mistake. One day, sin will be destroyed. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. 
but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's true. In Matthew 13, you find the parable of the wheat and the tares. In the parable, someone sows weeds in a man's wheat field. Workers ask if they should pull up the weeds, but the man says they should leave the weeds to grow with the wheat until the time of the harvest. It's after harvest or at that time that the tares are gathered into bundles and burned. The destruction doesn't take place until after the harvest. And when is that? Jesus said, the harvest is the end of the world. The fire doesn't burn until the end of the world. That's when hell takes place. John 5, do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. We found out there'll be two resurrections. And when Jesus returns at the other end of the millennium, 1,000 years later, it's then that the wicked are raised. So the incredibly good news is that lost people cannot possibly be in hell right now. It's just not possible. Now, when you attempt to understand the Bible or try to make sense of what people tell you, there are at least two things that God gave you. One is the Bible. The other is your brain. You are to think and have your thinking guided by God. Of course, when I was a child, I was told that hell burns in the center of the earth, which is a ludicrous proposition. Let's see what God himself says. Second Peter 3, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Did you see that? The heavens and the earth are reserved for fire. Revelation 20 verse 9, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So the destruction takes place on the earth, not in the center of the earth or at the Bermuda Triangle, as I've heard people suggest, on the earth. And why? We have read together, God is going to create new heavens and a new earth. The earth is going to be perfect again. So God is going to get rid of sin. It will be gone. And the world is going to be cleaned up. Now, really, the granddaddy of all questions about this is, is God going to burn people in the fires of hell forever? The reason this is a crucial question is it will reveal to us a lot about the character of God. What kind of individual could burn his enemies forever? That's the question Aaron Rodgers asked earlier. Can you imagine what God would be if he would burn people forever? Imagine that. God would be the worst tyrant who had ever lived. He'd be guilty of the worst case of child abuse in the history of the universe because after all, he's our father. I know it's what most of us were told. It's what tons of people believe. But you know, people have believed all sorts of odd things through the years. Who do you think wants you to believe that God burns people forever? Not God. The devil wants you to believe that about God. He's been lying about God for thousands of years. He would love for you to think that God is cruel and a tyrant and awful. 
It's not even possible for God to burn people in hell for eternity. If hellfire is here on the earth, as the Bible says, how would God even recreate the earth? If it burns forever, it couldn't possibly be recreated. We have learned that human beings are not immortal. Only God is immortal. The saved will be given eternal life at the second coming. If the wicked burn forever, that's eternal life. Look at 1 John 5 verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do people who are lost possess Jesus? No, they don't. So they can't have life, even if it's life in hell. It just can't be based on what the Scriptures plainly say. Lost people have rejected Jesus. Come on, let's look at these verses. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins, it shall what? Die. Romans 6.23, what's the wages of sin? It's not burning forever, it's death. Revelation 20 verse 14 calls this the second death. In Revelation chapter 20, you, you see that just as plain as you could ever see it. People die. Not even the devil's going to burn forever. Ezekiel 28, 18. I will bring forth a fire from the midst of you. It shall devour you, and I will bring you to ashes upon the earth. Even the devil is burned up. Look at Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day is coming, which shall burn them up says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. The scenario most of us have feared is that God will actively keep people alive throughout eternity just so He can torture them, which is about as hideous as it gets. God is not going to give immortality to those who don't love Him. This doesn't mean there's no hell. There is. It doesn't mean it isn't bad. It's terrible. But God isn't terrible. We've been lied to. I'm glad we're able to connect tonight so you can see what God is really like. Revelation 21.4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any pain, for the former things are passed away. How could that be true if hell burned forever. There'd be pain throughout all eternity. The prophet Nahum wrote that affliction shall not rise again the second time. Sin is going to be gone. No more sin, no more pain, no more tears. We'll have a new normal to get used to. And it will be fantastic. Normal now is people not getting along. Normal now is war and wickedness and prisons and jails and all kinds of fear. When this is over, the world will be a place of love, no sickness. That'll be the new normal. Hellfire is the end of sin. Once sin is eradicated, there'll be a new normal. Once sin is gone, oh wow. It's going to be fantastic. This is some of the greatest news that you will ever hear. Sin will be gone, gone, gone. God's going to get rid of it. It isn't His plan to reserve a corner of the universe as some kind of cesspool filled with sin and sinners 
so they can burn forever. That just doesn't make sense. But this does. God's going to clean up the earth, returning it to even greater beauty than there was in the Garden of Eden. And think with me, whenever God sent fire down from heaven, it always burned up what it came in contact with. It just burned it up. On Mount Carmel, in the time of Elijah, the fire came down from God out of heaven, burned up the offering, burned up the water, burned up the altar. Even the stones were burned up. Sodom and Gomorrah, burned up. The fire that God sends is a fire that consumes. Funnily enough, I've had people ask me, well, if people who go to hell just burn up, how bad can it be? Oh, you miss the point if you ask that question. Far worse than the physical affliction will be the mental agony of knowing that that person is separated forever from God and family and friends and life, gone forever. And all that they could have had, they won't have. Friend, you're not going to make that mistake, are you? Of having eternal life in your grasp, just letting it go. Why would anyone do that? Imagine hearing the Word of God, of learning that God is love, of discovering God has a perfect plan for you, and of going back to a life that ends in this world and with this world. I want to appeal to you right now. God is calling to you. This world, we're seeing again and again how fragile it is, how transitory it is. God's kingdom lasts forever. Remember the issue. God wants to get rid of sin. Jesus came to die for sin so it could be gone forever. God's not interested in making people suffer for as long as time lasts. He wants to get rid of sin. Imagine being in heaven and knowing that somewhere out there, your loved ones are burning away and suffering without any rest. After a few million years, I think you'd get a bit sick of that. No, God's plan is to remove the blot of sin from the face of the earth. Throughout eternity, we'll never be molested by sin anymore. I know someone's saying, ah, but doesn't the Bible say forever and ever? What about that? Okay, forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, right after it talked about forever and ever, it says that fire devours the people it comes in contact with. That would seem to be a different concept. Let's clear forever and ever up. In the Bible, forever does not always mean eternity. It's a relative term. Multiplied times in the Bible, forever is used in conjunction with an event that's already history. 1 Samuel 1 verse 22, But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. What she mean by that? Verse 28, Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord there. You see that? I'm going to take my boy, this child God has blessed me with, I'm going to take him to the temple and he will be there forever. Quick, let's go to the temple. Let's find out if Samuel is still there. What? He's not? But doesn't the Bible say he'll be there forever? Yes, John, it says forever, but it means clearly for as long as he lives. Ah, Jonah 2 verse 6, I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Forever? Jonah 1 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. 
Jonah was in the belly of the fish for, oh no, three days and three nights. So what we see is that when the Bible says forever, it doesn't always mean what we think of as forever. And in this case, it cannot. If hell burns forever, God is disgusting. If hell burns forever, God is repugnant. But he cannot be because God is love. Justice, oh, that's one thing, sure. But cruelty, that's another. Jude verse 7 says that Sodom and Gomorrah are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah is your example. Look what Peter wrote, 2 Peter 2 verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what you tell me into? Ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. There you got it, as plain as can be. Sodom and Gomorrah are, according to the Bible, an example of what happens with Revelation's lake of fire. Yes, but what about the rich man and Lazarus? Jesus taught that to his disciples. Okay, we'll read, we'll read it right now. Luke 16. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Okay. Right away, you've got to ask yourself several questions. Perhaps the first is, does this story really contradict everything else the Bible says on the subject? Surely it doesn't. It cannot. Second, is the story meant to be taken literally? It comes at the end of a long line of parables. Third, do we really believe that Abraham's bosom is the abode of the redeemed? And what about a man asking for a drop of water? Wouldn't he want a lake or an ocean? This parable teaches us a lot about God, and maybe it teaches us something about us. Jesus is teaching that heaven is not acquired by birthright. The Pharisees thought that because they were Abraham's children, they had some kind of divine right to enter heaven. Who'd the rich man call to? Abraham. Who should he have called to? God. Jesus was showing them that wealth is not a sign of divine favor any more than poverty is a sign of divine displeasure. They thought if you were wealthy, God had blessed you. If you were poor, God had cursed you. Not so. The point of it all is found in verse 31. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Moses and the prophets should have been enough for them. But instead, no. Moses and the prophets should have been enough to lead them to believe in Jesus. After all, he raised someone called Lazarus. So Jesus is saying here in the word of God, he said to them, if you won't respond to the plain word of God, if you won't accept scripture, 
Even a miracle won't convince you. A merciful, loving God is finally going to get rid of the disease of sin. God is giving us the opportunity right now to look at our lives, to reassess everything. He's giving you the chance to look at yourself and ask yourself if you're really satisfied as things are. If God is not the center of your life, you'll have a better opportunity to do something about that. Or should I say, you'll never have a better opportunity. Remember the great truth of this. 1 John 5 verse 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. If Jesus lives in your heart, if he owns your life, if you're trusting him and leaning on him, if he's your Savior and your Lord, you can know that you have life. You can look forward to a new normal. Will you allow Jesus to get you out alive, to save you, to rescue you, to give you the best that he has to offer? One day there'll be no more death, no more fear. The world will actually be a place of love. God's going to get rid of sin. That's going to be the new normal. A world based not on selfishness, but on selflessness. A place where everyone follows God's way out of love. No more fear. Years ago, I worked in Leicester Square in London, England, close to the National Gallery, which is in Trafalgar Square. You know, there are almost two and a half thousand paintings in the National Gallery, some of them 700 years old. I would spend hours there. Last time I was in London, I visited for maybe two hours. It was good, but you just can't appreciate it. You can't do it justice by rushing through. You don't drive past Westminster Abbey and say you've seen it. You don't see the Eiffel Tower off in the distance and then tell your friends, oh, I've been to the Eiffel Tower. It's like that with faith in God. You don't rush through it. You can't appreciate it from the window of a tour bus. Paul described his experience when he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. There's a connection there. Are you connected? Your faith will never be what God wants it to be if you don't truly connect with Jesus. Or oh, friend, there's a new normal coming. God's going to get rid of sin. Can we thank him for that? Tell him we want to be in the earth made new. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, that's our wish to be in your eternal kingdom, no more sin. Thank you for getting rid of it. Get rid of it out of our hearts and lives so that we love you more than anything, that you take our hearts and make them yours. Thank you for speaking us. Thank you for speaking to us yet again. We love you and want to love you more. Keep us as yours now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining me. I'm looking forward to seeing you again next time for more on Hope Awakens. Until then, God bless you.